Hey everyone, Steve here. As we struggle to understand the vastly complicated personal, economic, social, legislative, and political implications of coronavirus, I'm struck by the thought that the one thing that will defeat it, the one thing that will put it back in the bottle and seal the cap, is human curiosity and its progeny, science. Without curiosity, there is no science. And without science, there is no forward movement, no cure. In that regard, curiosity, the great catalyst of human thought and ideas, is far more viral than the coronavirus itself. When I was an undergrad at Berkeley, I took a lot of advanced biology and biochemistry classes, and I spent a lot of time studying viruses. I'm fascinated by them in a morbid kind of way for a bunch of reasons that I'd like to share with you. Remember, this podcast is about the power of curiosity, so just go with me on this. I've spoken with a lot of people over the last few months, and one of the things I've come to realize is that a lot of folks don't really understand what a virus is or how it actually works. They tend to put it kind of in the same category as bacteria. So before I go any further, let me clear that up for those of you whose memory of viruses is kind of sketchy. Imagine that you're a bacterium deep in the gut of your host human, just going about your day doing whatever it is that bacteria do. Now, just a little bit of perspective here. The average human body contains trillions of microorganisms. In fact, according to the National Institutes of Health, they outnumber the human cells in the body by 10 to 1. That's right. There are 10 times as many non-human cells in your body as there are human cells in your body. But they're really small, so they're only about 3% of the body's weight. But that's still a lot. In a 180-pound person, that's almost 6 pounds of bacteria. Now, before you freak out, they're there for a reason. We need them to survive. They help with a lot of metabolic processes in the body. Anyway, there you are, a little rod-shaped bacillus crawling around and doing your bacteria thing, when suddenly from out of nowhere, a virus lands on the surface of your cell membrane. Without warning, it extends a tiny little needle, and it pierces the membrane, and then squirts a single strand of DNA or RNA into your body. And this is where things begin to happen rather quickly. The bacterium has just become the victim of the ultimate form of a hostile takeover. That little tiny piece of genetic material that the virus injected immediately goes to work reprogramming the genetic instructions of the bacterium to retool for one single purpose. Instead of doing all the things that it normally did to make new bacteria, it's now instructed to retool the genetic factory and start producing thousands of new viruses. Eventually, it creates so many of them that the cell membrane bursts, and each of those newly created viruses goes on to attack another bacterium, repeating the process many, many times over. When you hear the phrase going viral, now you know why it's used to refer to something that's growing out of control. Now, the really scary part of this is that viruses aren't really alive, so they can't be killed. They're more like a little nano-robot than they are a living organism, which is why antibiotics don't work on them. Antiviral drugs try to do a couple of things. They either keep the virus load inside the host cell so that it can't reproduce, or they keep it from attaching to the host cell in the first place. So, enough biology or virology or immunology or whatever that was. Now you know how they work and where the phrase going viral comes from, which brings us back to my original observation about the importance of curiosity. Victor Hugo once wrote that nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come. I agree. 
But I would also add that nothing spreads as fast as a good idea. And to expand on the virus analogy, where ideas are the viruses, books are the bacteria that often spawn them. Consider this quote from Christopher Morley, the author of Parnassus on Wheels about a traveling bookshop and the haunted bookshop from which this quote is pulled. Here's my war alcove, he went on. I've stacked up here most of the really good books the war has brought out. If humanity has sense enough to take these books to heart, it will never get itself into this mess again. Printer's Ink has been running a race against gunpowder these many, many years. Ink is handicapped in a way because you can blow up a man with gunpowder in half a second, while it may take 20 years to blow him up with a book. But the gunpowder destroys itself along with its victim, while a book can keep on exploding for centuries. There's Hardy's Dynasts, for example. When you read that book, you can feel it blowing up your mind. It leaves you gasping, ill, nauseated. Oh, it's not pleasant to feel some really pure intellect filtered into one's brain. It hurts. There's enough TNT in that book to blast war from the face of the globe. But there's a slow fuse attached to it. It hasn't really exploded yet, and maybe it won't for another 50 years. After Morley died in 1957, his final words were published by newspapers. Read every day something no one else is reading. Think every day something no one else is thinking. Do every day something no one else would be silly enough to do. It is bad for the mind to continually be part of unanimity. Once again, curiosity reigns supreme. Another great quote comes from American writer Clarence Day. Now, please forgive the gender-specific language. It's a direct quote from a 19th century author. The world of books is the most remarkable creation of man. Nothing else that he builds ever lasts. Monuments fall, nations perish, civilizations grow old and die out, and after an era of darkness, new races build others. But in the world of books are volumes that have seen this happen again and again, and yet live on, still young, still fresh as the day they were written, still telling men's hearts of the hearts of men centuries dead. Books have been around for a long time in lots of different forms. During the first century, about 2,000 years ago, Roman citizens walked around with wax-covered wooden tablets on which they could write notes to themselves or to others by pressing into the surface of the wax with a stylus. And while the concept of a pageable book had not yet arrived, scrolls had. Made from sheets of Egyptian papyrus, some of these scrolls were quite long, more than 50 feet in some cases, and pretty cumbersome to read. Reading a scroll required both hands, so you could forget walking around with a cup of Starbucks in one hand and your book in the other. To read it required that one hand unroll the scroll while the other rolled it up in the opposite spindle. Later that same century, though, a new kind of reading experience happened on the scene, although very, very little is known of it. Archaeologists have recently found scraps of papyrus that are clearly pages from the first book ever known. The pages of fading text have very clear margins, and in at least one case, there's evidence of a line of text continuing on the other side of the page. That's how books are designed. The Romans called them a codex, or plural codices, 
and the first ever reference to their existence is in a piece of writing by the poet Marshall, in which he says this, and personally, I think this is one of the world's first advertisements. You who long for my little books to be with you everywhere and want to have companions for a long journey, buy these ones, which parchment confines within small pages. Give your scroll cases to the great authors. One hand can hold me. These books were written on sheets of parchment, which was made of stretched animal skins. There was a lot of resistance to these newfangled books. The pagan majority in Rome, as well as the Jewish population, preferred the far more familiar and traditional scroll, while the Christian population latched onto the book idea. Well, now, physical books and e-books are locked in a pitched battle for dominance over the readers of the world. Now, when e-readers first arrived, lovers of physical books declared that Armageddon was upon us. I was one of them. While I also celebrated the fact that I had over 500 books in my Kindle and had only used about 3% of its available storage. I mean, traveling as much as I do and reading as much as I do, that thing is a blessing. So yeah, I buy e-books by the bucket load. But I also have a large and growing library of physical books with which I will never part and which will never stop growing. And while e-books dominated physical books for a long time, their sales now are starting to flatten and people are buying more physical books. Why? Well, who knows? Some of it has to do with the tangible thing that a book is. Some of it's about the fact that readers form relationships with books that they read and they want the physical manifestation of it in their hands. Books are beautiful things after all, like art. They're collected by many people simply because they smile when they look at them. I know I do. One of the many treasures in my library is a very large book that we acquired while living in Spain. It's about 20 inches tall, 13 inches wide, and handwritten. And it was written 700 years ago. I recently started a personal project to determine the provenance of this remarkable book, which we bought for $2 in Madrid's flea market. It's a beautiful religious text, hand-illuminated, a collection of chants, and hidden in the book are several mysterious handwritten notes, slips of paper, and other clues that may help me determine its origin. I'm going to tell you more about it in future episodes. And by the way, just one more thing. Bina and I were talking the other day about the fact that travel is pretty much out of the question right now for obvious reasons, but that people are complaining because they can't go anywhere. Well, I disagree. I can place in your hands right now your very own personal time machine and StarTech transporter. It's called a book. If you can't go to France this year, then read A Year in Provence by Peter Mayo. If you can't travel to Yosemite, pick up a copy of John Muir's Travels. And if that journey to Singapore isn't happening, then read Kevin Kwan's Crazy Rich Asians. The book is actually better than the movie. And hey, here's a shameless plug. Read my novel, Inca Gold, Spanish Blood. It'll transport you from California to Spain to Latin America and drag you across six centuries of history. Let me leave you with this. Beatrice Ward was a printing historian. In 1932, she wrote the following notice, which to this day can still be found on the walls of printing houses all over the world. It goes like this. This is a printing office. Crossroads of civilization, refuge of all the arts against the ravages of time, armory of the fearless truth against whispering rumor, incessant trumpet of trade, 
From this place words may fly abroad, not to perish on waves of sound, not to vary with the writer's hand, but fixed in time, having been verified in proof. Friend, you stand on sacred ground, for this is a printing office. This episode, in fact, this entire podcast is all about curiosity, the deliberate practice of seeking new knowledge purely for the sake of seeking new knowledge. Today, more than ever, we owe it to ourselves to be curious, to question the so-called news, most of it actually opinion, that trumpets at us from every source. This is not a time to be complacent about what we allow to enter our heads to influence how we think about the world. There are existential things going on, and our responsibility is to make decisions that will guide us out of this viral darkness. So please, ask questions. Do your homework. Always, always, always seek out a second source, an alternate perspective. Don't fall prey to confirmation bias, that dangerous practice of only reading the news that supports the way you already think. Choose to learn, to be smarter. Read a book, an article, a white paper, the back of a cereal box, but read. Be open-minded. Be willing to be wrong. To be wrong is to be strong. And above all else, model this behavior for young people. They deserve to see us at our level-headed best. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.